please turn to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is our text this morning. As we continue our series in the book of Psalms. Give you a moment there to turn to Psalm 88. And the title of today's message is A Tenacious Faith. We're going to start off reading it, so I want to give you a moment there so we can all look together. All right, starting at the verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me, and you have made me a whore to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the baden? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Wow. (laughs) Well, church, several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to preach on what is arguably the happiest psalm in the collection, Psalm 150. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So perhaps it is fitting this morning that I have the opportunity to preach on what is arguably the saddest and most depressing psalms in the collection, Psalm 88. How's that for an introduction, huh? I mean... But let's be honest here. The high point of this psalm, verse 1. Look at it. That's it. Psalm 1. Get there as well. Oh, Lord, my God, my salvation. Then it's pretty much downhill from there. The psalm ends with verse 16 with these really foreboding word, this foreboding word, darkness. And that about sums up the psalm. This psalm has no confession of sin. Typical of so many psalms. There's no direct petition for divine intervention, as is so typical. There's even no vow 
a praise. There's no statement of confidence. So often when we read the Psalms, we see David's Psalms. Yeah, he comes to God. He's suffering. He's in a bad place. But then at the end, we see him affirm the God whom he worships, his character and his faith in him. But in this Psalm, we do not see this. In fact, in this Psalm, there's no resolution to what the psalmist is facing. For those who are visual learners, let me put it this way. If this psalm were, ready for this? An emoji, that's right. It would look something like this. A profoundly weary or crying face. Or perhaps would look like this. What I call the fearful death scream. Can't choose between the two. Maybe we don't have to, church. I know my daughter likes to take my wife's cell phone many times, and send me a text, which is really a string of emojis. Psalm 88, it's 18 verses, 18 emojis that look something like that. And it is sobering. The church, the psalmist, is texting God. And these emojis, these emotions that he's feeling that we're reading about are being directed to him. You know, when preaching on Psalm 150, I mentioned this saying, life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. This psalm, Psalm 88, is about what to do when the storm doesn't pass and you cannot dance. You cannot sing. And you can't even praise God. This psalm, is for the nitty-gritty of real life. It's about those times, it's about those seasons when we are unable to praise God. There seems no resolution to your problems. And frankly, there's no hope in sight as far as you can see. There's just darkness. But, but, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of the weariness and the complaints of the psalmist, I want you to hear this this morning. There's gold to be found here. You got to go digging this morning. We're going to go digging, okay? For there is gold. There is light. There is hope. There's what I'm simply calling this morning a tenacious faith. And I'm so glad that God has preserved this psalm for us in the Bible. For through it, we learn and we see what it means to cry out to God. I mean, really, cry out to God, to cry out to Jesus. And yes, even your complaints as well. And that's the main point we're driving at in Psalm 88. Cry out to God, complaints included. Church, come weary. Come depressed. Come to God and cry out. Let's pray. Well, dear Lord, this is in many ways a challenging psalm. In some ways, it's a troublesome psalm. But yet, Lord, it is also a precious psalm. In the midst of the darkness, may you shine forth your light. So, Lord, we're asking that we would see the contours of faith this morning as exhibited in this psalmist, that we too may take courage, 
that we too may take hope in our lives when the darkness surrounds us. And may we know what faith looks like even in the darkest of times. And may we know to whom we come. Oh, you, oh God, build our faith this morning. Meet us through your word wherever we find ourselves that we may receive your encouragement this morning and that we may be your instruments of encouragement and of empathy and of mercy to our loved ones who may be suffering as well. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin, I want to take a look this morning at the subscript of Psalm 88. Most of your Bibles should have it. I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. And if you take a look at it, there's a small print. You see that before verse 1? This is something we can often ignore, just kind of go right by, or even sometimes just miss. But I think it has a lesson for us as we begin. It's an important one. Look at the last line of the subscript for Psalm 88. It says this, A masculine of Haman, or Haman, we'll call him Haman, the Ezraite. In other words, this is a song. This is a psalm. This is a poem of Haman. Well, it begs the question, who was Haman? Well, he's the author of the psalm. Most likely, Haman refers to a wise man, a well-known man who served as a king seer in the time of King Solomon. We get that from 1 Kings 4.31. Don't need to turn there. Just trust me on that one. This man is mentioned. In fact, what we learn is this. Before there is such a thing as the wisdom of Solomon, there was such a thing as the wisdom of Haman. In other words, he was the standard of wisdom before Solomon came along. He was a man who possessed wisdom and vision. Thus, he was a seer. This is the man who wrote the psalm. We say, why do I mention that? Well, I think it's significant that what we have here in this psalm is not a man who lacks knowledge. This is not a man who lacks wisdom. You understand, there is no knowledge or wisdom deficit here that somehow is contributing to the depression, the despair, the despondency, and the depression of Haman. What we know, there's no moral deficit either. At least there's no known or confessed sin, which somehow is feeding his depression. Here's the point. Here's a man who knows all the right answers. He's wise. Here's a man who presumably knew the covenant promises of God. He was not ignorant. But here's the point as well. All of that seems of little help to him in his current state. He is despondent. He is seemingly depressed man. And he's struggling to arrive at hope. In other words, depression has vandalized this man's joy. And it's refused him any comfort that may be derived from his knowledge of God. This is a man who describes himself in verse 7 as overwhelmed and in verse 15 as helpless. Can you relate? Church, this can happen. This can happen to you. It can happen to me. Even if you're here this morning and you're not experiencing such darkness, 
hate to break the news to you, but you likely will at some point if you haven't already. You see, this is a psalm for every person here. For those who are currently struggling with a foreboding darkness or despair or those who will. But maybe you're not that this morning. You're doing well. You're singing with all your heart when we sang a few moments ago. And I'm glad that you are. You may have been wondering, you know, Corey, I've been here for a while. We've been going through the Psalms and really another Psalm on suffering? I thought we just had one on depression. What's going on here? Well, first of all, I know we're not teaching topically here. We're going through the wisdom literature in the book of Psalms. This is God's doing. God has preserved these Psalms. And you may wonder, why is there so much talk of darkness and suffering? Welcome to life. That's what I love about the Psalms. We're just going through them, okay? If it happens to hit it a lot, because there's a lot of suffering in this world, is there not? We're prone to darkness and despair. But I want you to hear this as well. If you're not struggling, once again, I'm glad that you're not. And I want you to hear this. You probably know someone close to you who is. And this psalm is going to help you compassionately and yet boldly care for that loved one in your life who may be in the midst of depression right now. You see, if you haven't suffered the way Haman has, this type of despair, this overwhelming darkness, you know what? It, it, it's easy to look at this psalm, or maybe those in his condition, and make rather uncharitable judgments. We could even interpret his complaints, and there are a lot of complaints here, as a lack of faith in God. The church, that is not what is happening here with Haman. He may not understand all that's happening to him, and he surely doesn't like it, but he's not retreating from God. He is drawing near. He is crying out. In fact, it says it's day and night. This is a sleepless man. This is a guy who's tortured. He's crying out, but he's coming to God. And he's tenaciously pouring out his heart and his complaints to God. And that leads to the first point. Pour out, church, your complaints to God. We could emphasize, we could underline those last two words. To God. Haman is addressing the Lord. Remember the Lord? The personal name of God. The covenant promise-keeping name of God. In other words, this is personal. And he's coming to his personal God. The only one who can save him. And thus he says, the God, I love this, of my salvation. Haman's not turning to idols, church. He's not complaining to others, as far as we know. He's not numbing himself with alcohol. He's not wasting away his days on YouTube. In his despair, no, this man is coming to God in the midst of his terrible darkness. And he's crying out. This is not a nice, this is not a neat, this is not a tidy prayer. This is the prayer of a bold and a messy sort. I love how one commentator puts it. This is, quote, not a dignified prayer, but protracted wailing. This is messy. This is a tear-laden, mascara-smudging type of prayer. You ever been there? I have, minus the mascara. (laughs) 
When I read this, I imagine it's a free climbing, a wall, a cliff. It's as if Haman is hanging on by his fingernails to what he knows about God. He knows that he is sovereign and he knows that he's good, but he doesn't know how long he can hold on. He's a man who's about to fall. He's a man who is desperately clinging to God, but he's doing it in faith. And it's at these moments, church, when we need to know, when we so want to know that God is there and he has regard for our helpless estate. This is all Haman wants. At least it's all he can muster to ask. There's only one petition. Maybe you noticed it. Only one in this entire psalm. It's at the beginning. Verse 2. Let's read it. Look at verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. God, incline your ear to me. This is a man who just wants to be heard. He wants to know that God knows that he's hanging there by his fingernails on the cliff and he's ready to fall. In other words, God, hear my prayer. He's feeling deserted and abandoned by God. That is why he's coming to God. Sometimes we can get at such a point in our desperation that we just want to know, Lord, give me a sign. Just feed me a morsel. Show me anything that you're there and that you, Lord, you hear my prayers. This is where this man is. If it sounds a lot like the plight of Job, you're right. Job in the Bible Haman is suffering with a Job-like intensity. And God seems distant and silent. So what does Haman do? What does the psalmist do? He begins describing his plight to God and pouring out his complaints to him. And in doing so, I believe he is implicitly appealing for God's mercy. So the first point, pour out your complaints to God. First sub point about your situation, about your plight. We see that in verses three through five. Let's look at it as I read it again. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off. From your hand. Wow. This is a picture of a man who feels and fears as if he is near death. Did you catch the references? Look at verse 3, the Sheol. Verse 4, the pit. Verse 5, the grave. In fact, verse 4 seems to really sum it up with a rather curious phrase. Look at this. Like one set loose among the dead. In other words, I believe he's saying, I'm alive, but dead. We call that a zombie, all right? I think Ed Welch can help us understand this when he says, I think we have the quote up here for you as well. Depression feels terrifying. Your world is dark, heavy, painful. Dead, but walking is one way to describe it. You feel numb. Here's a kicker, but you still remember when you actually felt something. And so we find the psalmist, a dead man walking, pained yet numbed at the same time. 
But what is it that's going on? What, what is Haman encountering? Do, do we know? What is this affliction and suffering? We're not sure, are we? We're not told specifically. It may be a chronic illness. It could be leprosy, of which he is despairing. In fact, we go down to verse 15. It appears that this situation, this illness, whatever it may be, has occurred or been there since his youth. But it could be any severely distressing or life-threatening situation. We have no way of knowing for sure. We have no way of knowing if what Haman feels even really corresponds to his reality. It probably does, but I don't know. We're not told. The well-known British Baptist preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon. You've probably heard of him. Did you know he was well acquainted with depression and despondency? He was very open about it as well. He knew depression intimately well. Yes, pastors too can suffer depression. And Spurgeon comments on one sermon entitled, Away with Fear. Here's his quote. Desponding people can find reason for fear where no fear is. We convert our suspicions into realities and torture ourselves with them in our own imaginations. So is Haman really near death? Is it really that bad? Is the situation really life-threatening? Once again, I suspect so, but I don't know. But you know what? I don't think we need to know the answer here. Why? Because Haman feels as if he is near death. And that's enough. And thus he's coming to God. He's coming to God with his emotions. He's coming to God with his rawness. He's coming to God with his despair and with his fear. And he's coming to God as he is. And that's the point. Sometimes we feel like we can only come to God when we have it all figured out, what's going on in our mind and our hearts. You know, we kind of rehearse it and, okay, Lord, I think these prayers are just, you know, it's like, I think I'm justified in bringing this matter to you, you know, and okay, I've checked my heart motive and I, I, I think it's all aligned with your word. Church, that's noble and good. That's not how life works a lot of the time for me. Especially when you're encountering depression or just feeling overpowered by darkness. See, there's only one thing that Haman seems to have figured out here. It's not his heart. It's this. That God has everything to do with the situation he is in. In fact, Haman is convinced that what he is experiencing, catch this, it's God's doing. If you didn't feel, comf- if you didn't feel comfortable before, this is where we start to feel a little uncomfortable, okay? I mean, listen to what Haman's saying, verses 6 through 8, with emphasis. He's speaking to God. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a whore to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. Wow. Haman pours out his complaint, not only regarding his very situation, but regarding God's very actions. You did this, God. 
Yes, pour out your complaints to God. First bullet point, regarding or about your situation. Second, about God's actions. And yes, we'll get there in God's inaction, verses six through 12. Let me beg the question. What's going on here? Is Haman blaming God? I mean, what are you saying? Can we do that? (laughs) God, it's your fault. You're doing it. No, if you're asking me, can we ascribe evil to God? But I don't think that's what's happening here with Haman. Haman is forthrightly acknowledging God's sovereign hand and all that he does and all that's happened to him. And he feels it personally. He feels it acutely. That's why he's coming to God and he's pouring out his heart and yet his complaints. I don't think the psalmist here is able necessarily to parse what is happening. Meaning, is what is happening something that I did? Is it because of my guilt? Or is this an innocent suffering like that of Job? I don't know if he's able to answer that question. But at this point in time, Haman doesn't even appear to be trying to discern his heart or any wrongdoing in his part. I'm not saying that's wrong. That's where he is right now. But where he is right now, he's coming to God as he is experiencing life. In his theology, his faith, and his emotions all tell him that God is very much involved in his suffering, whatever the reason. Just a little side here. If you're not suffering right now in darkness, this is a good time to figure out what you really believe about God, what your really functional theology is, okay? Do you really believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe he's good? It's really hard to figure out these in moments of suffering. Our judgment is clouded. I believe Haman came with this. He knew enough to know that God is sovereign and God is somehow involved with this. I don't like it. I don't want it, but I know God's here. My theology tells me, my heart tells me that. And so he comes. But yet with that knowledge, he feels an enmity around him. It still doesn't free him. He feels God's wrath, verse 7. Or I say it in verse 15. It says that God's terror. God's terror is usually referred to in Scripture as that which is reserved for God's enemies. What is he saying? I feel like your enemy, God. I know you're sovereign. I know you're good and I'm coming to you, but I feel like your enemy right now. You're enemy number one. Furthermore, to add insult to injury, his very companions, his friends, his loved ones have been made to shun him as if he were an enemy or a criminal. Look at verse 8. My glasses. Verse 8. Where is it? Right here. (laughs) You have made me a whore to them. This word whore means repulsive. I'm repulsive to my friends. It means detestable like that of an idolater. Or maybe to put it in our cultural context, it's as if he's on par with a child molester. He's detestable. He's despicable in the sight of his friends and those around him. Pain and shame cloak this man and he feels all alone. To quote Zach S. One, The irony of desertion is that that God's absence feels overwhelmingly close to us. Catch the irony there? Or the seeming paradox? 
God's desertion feels so close. And so it does for Haman as we see him in these verses. Oh, but he's not done yet. This is a man who's not ready to go to the grave. And so his complaints take on a new intensity and a new tenacity. He now switches from appealing to God's mercy, now appealing to God's glory, his very character. In other words, he's thrown it all at God. It's like, if I'm going down, I'm going down kicking and screaming, okay? I'm not going down without a fight. Church, this is a sign of life. This is a sign of vitality. This is a sign of life, not death. It's a sign of faith, not apostasy. You see, Haman's depression is not mute. He must speak. Now listen to his words, verse 10 through 12. Look at these questions. These are aimed squarely at God. He's going down kicking. He's going down fighting. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness and abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? I think his point's simple enough. Because say, God, if I'm dead, I can't praise you. I don't think that somehow he's doubting life after death and the resurrection of the dead. I think he's simply saying, God, I cannot fill my purpose for me here on earth now to glorify you if I'm dead. In the grave. In an odd way, he's affirming God's very covenant steadfast love. It's like Haman can't come to praise God, but he's saying, in essence, but if I die, I cannot praise you for your faithfulness and love. Oh, I want to. I want to be back in that place, but I can't. And I surely won't if I'm dead. So God, would you spare me according to your own glory and your character that I may once again praise you? And such he's implicitly asking for God's intervention and deliverance from despair. Church, this is a tenacious faith. Thus he keeps praying. Look at verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. For the most part, it's really just a, a version or repeat of verse 1. Look at verse 1. I cry out day and night before you. He's saying it again. I, I believe this verse 13 you see here is a textual marker in the psalm. And what, how, how it's functioning is this. It's It's signifying another series of complaints, verses 14 through 18, that take us to the conclusion of the psalm. But what's most noteworthy about these final verses, this repeated cry, is not the new material. What's most noteworthy is that Haman's covering the same ground again. He just said it, and now he's saying it again. See, most of the time, we don't just need to pour out our heart to God just once. Got it, got it out of my system, never again. No, I got to do it again and again. And that's what Haman's doing as well, once again. And that leads to point two, do it again and again. What are we referring to? Pouring out your complaints to God. Once again, he feels his prayers are an answer. Look at verse 13, just follow with me. Look at verse 14. He feels spurned by God, nothing new there. Verse 15, feels afflicted. Yeah, covered that already. He feels terrorized as God's enemies. Yeah, that too, ditto. Verses 15, 16, and 17. Look at verse 18. Doesn't get any better. Been there. Deserted by lovers. So he adds lovers. So it's friends and lovers. I've been deserted by everyone. This is not new prayer territory. It's familiar ground. It's not that God needs to hear Haman's request again as if God is slow and kind of forgetful, you know? 
No, but it's obvious that Haman needs to pray these complaints again for the sake of his own faith and well-being. Why? To keep him from going down to the pit of despair. In other words, Haman needs to vent. Not, Not sinfully, but as an expression of his tenacious faith in the darkest of times. And you know what? It's quite clear from Scripture that God can handle it. He can handle our venting, our complaints. He's not phased. He can handle our doubts. He can handle our fears. He can handle our pain. Even when we tell it to him again and again and again. See, friends, if we stay mute and do not pray through our despair with such honest and real emotions, you're going to grow embittered. You will grow increasingly quiet and distant from God. And most likely, you'll become cynical, playing into the hand of Satan himself. Cynicism kills any hope. Speaking of that cynical spirit, Paul Miller, in his book, excellent book called The Praying Life, says this. Dreaming, this is for the cynical, okay? Dreaming feels like foolishness. And prayer feels pointless. As if we are talking to the wind. See, cynicism, it will protect you. It'll do this. It functions well in protecting you from any crushing disappointment. Why? Because a cynic has no expectations. I have no expectations of God. He's going to do anything that he really cares. Just protecting yourself from any disappointment. And that may work well, but it also paralyzes you. It paralyzes you from doing anything, especially praying, because that opens you up to disappointment to prayers not answered in your way, in your timing. And that's the crushing disappointment and despair that can result. But a tenacious faith will come to God in disappointment and despair, believing God is there. A tenacious faith will come to God in prayer even when God cannot be praised. A tenacious faith will open up your heart to God and cry out as messy and as sloppily as it comes out. And that leads to the final point in conclusion. Why? Why do all this? I mean, you mentioned earlier there's no resolution here. I mean, Haman's doing it. What good did it do to him? Let me tell you. Friends, we pray in the rain even when we cannot dance in it or sing in it. We do so with this hope that God can turn our complaints into praise. Oh, he can. Coming to God as you are in your despair and depression, it isn't all there is to faith. But you know what? It's a great starting point, as we see here, when you can do no other. Psalm 88 isn't the whole psalm in the Psalter, right? There's 150 of them. In fact, the very next psalm, 89, begins with a jubilant praise. You can see it there in your Bible. It begins with a jubilant praise of God's steadfast love. 
That Psalm 89 was written by Ethan the Ezraite. If Ethan the Ezraite could do this in Psalm 89, I have little doubt that Haman the Ezraite, Ezraite, maybe a peer of Ethan, maybe a family member for all I know, eventually came to do the same. So when we speak to God in prayer, something amazing can happen. Our numbed hearts can become gradually warmed and our minds renewed. I don't think the verbiage here in Psalm 88 is purely coincidental. You realize, don't you? There's another person who went down to the grave suffering God's wrath, who was cut off and abandoned by God, who was betrayed, who was denied, and who was deserted by his own loved ones and friends. In fact, this man was called, here's his name, one of the names, a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. We find this man of sorrows spoken of in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, and we'll put it up on the screen for you. This man of sorrows was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Let's go back to that word grief. Dare we say a man acquainted with depression? It's a question. Let's go on. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's the man of sorrows we sung about a few minutes ago, church. His name is Jesus. Jesus knew what it was like to suffer in darkness. You know what else? Jesus knew what it was like to have his prayers go unanswered. From that garden of sorrows, we call it Garden of Gethsemane. Christ prayed. What did Christ pray? Lord, to be your will, I don't want to go to the cross. Oh, to bear the wrath of mankind. You understand that prayer was unanswered the way Christ in his humanity wanted it to be answered. Christ heard a big, fat no. In fact, the Father willingly sent the Son to the cross to bear the wrath that you and I deserve, to be cut off and to be forsaken. The very thing that Christ so feared, that he sweat blood and poured tears out over. And he did it, that we would never be forsaken by him. No, never. God uses our pained prayers to remind us of these gospel truths, that we are not alone, that God is not indifferent to your plight. On the contrary, he knows the depth of your pain. He knows the depth of forsakenness and a darkness that you and I will never know because of the cross. To quote Charles Spurgeon again, we'll put it up there. Love this quote. The sympathy of Jesus is the next most precious thing to his sacrifice. Is it to you? I just want to be honest for a moment here. Sometimes the glory of Christ in his glorious return can fail to move me. 
I, I, know, I, I know the promises, church. I, I know the glorious return of our Savior. I know the promises of heaven, of a new heaven, a new earth. There will be no more pain and no more suffering. But that light fails to shine in my heart. And at those times of deep depression and darkness, we need not just the Jesus to come. Oh, we need him, the one who is to come and to make all things new. But we also need the Jesus who has come, the one who has suffered, who has mourned, and who knows our deep darkness and despair. We need to know that we are not alone in that dark place, that we've never been alone. Church, what is that worth to you? Those who suffer with depression, as well as those who seek to give care to those who may be suffering, please remember this. Please hear this. The consolation of heaven in God's promises will sometimes fail to comfort the afflicted. And when they do, please do not judge. And if you're the one being afflicted, please do not feel condemned. Let's read Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, a well-known and loved verse, and for good reason. Speaking of the sympathy of Jesus, speaking of our great high priest. For we did not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, not with condemnation, with confidence, with faith, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive, there we go, mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Prayer takes us to that throne of grace, church, especially messy and tenacious prayer. We need Psalm 88 as much as we need Psalm 150. That is, we need to know how to pray in the rain when we cannot dance in it. Psalm 98 shows us the way. With that in mind, I want to invite the worship team to come on up. And we're going to conclude with one last song. Blessed be the name. Blessed be the one. In church, I want to do this. This last song is our ministry time. Instead of inviting you forward, one or two things. I want you to sing. I want you to sing if you're able and praise the one Jesus, the one who's come, the afflicted one, the man of sorrows who's come to take our sin and shame. But if you're in a place where you can't sing that, that's okay this morning. Your application is to pour out your complaints to God. You can stand right there. Say, God, I want to sing this, but my heart's not in it because I'm struggling. This is the perfect time to come to Jesus. Tell him what you think. He already knows it. You're just putting into words. In faith, you're coming to him. No other. You're coming to God and saying, God, this is how I'm really doing. I don't want to mouth it. I don't want to fake it. This is me in my current state. I don't like it. I don't even understand it. But I know that you're here and you hear my prayers and I'm coming to you. Be honored in my prayers, okay? So sing it. If you can't sing it, pray those prayers. That is our ministry time. And as we conclude... It's like, I can't even pray the prayer right now. Maybe a friend that you came with, you just need to come up to next to their side afterwards and say, can you pray with me? Just help me pray. I need it. Of course, we as pastors, we're delighted to do that as well.
But for now, let us sing. Let us stand. Let us sing. Let us pray. Let us come to Jesus as we are.